Attention listeners, do you ever find yourself struggling to decide what to watch on a Saturday night when you're in the mood for horror? Or perhaps you're trying to round out your own horror film education. In either case, I'm sure you'll be able to make some great discoveries in my 10x10 horror watch list, featuring a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors. We did a deep dive of the favorite horror movies from directors including Guillermo del Toro, Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, Quentin Tarantino, James Gunn, Rob Zombie, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more. Here you'll find a collection of each director's favorite horror movies, along with quotes about what they appreciated about the films, all in an easy-to-reference PDF that you can download absolutely free. Featuring a mix of well-worn classics and deep cuts, hopefully you'll discover some overlooked gems and look at old classics through new lenses. Download the 10x10 Horror Watch List for free by visiting nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Randall Akita is a Japanese-Canadian director and artist. His latest movie is the new IFC midnight thriller, See For Me. See For Me is about a young blind woman house-sitting at a secluded mansion who finds herself under invasion by thieves who are seeking a hidden safe. Her only means of defense is a new app called See For Me that connects her to a volunteer across the country who helps her survive by seeing on her behalf through her phone. See For Me is now available on demand and super entertaining, beautifully directed, and of the many fantastic performances, features one of my personal favorite actors, Kim Coates. Really enjoyed this interview with Randall a lot. We got into the making of See For Me, his director origin story, and as always, his advice for aspiring filmmakers. Now, without further ado, please give it up for the director of See For Me, Randall Okita. Randall Okita, great to see you. How's it going? Fantastically well, thanks, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So first of all, huge congratulations on C for me. Uh, really, really enjoyed this a lot. I mean, there was so many fun twists. It had like a little bit of a pulpy element, but it was also like Hitchcockian and like really, really enjoyed it a lot. Um, I'm really curious what was the origin of the idea? I mean, I feel like this app must exist, right? It, there's a few of them yeah and and there's there's um that is where it came from first of all thank you for watching and, and i'm so glad you enjoyed it um yeah you know one of the writers uh there's two writers tommy gusho and adam york and adam originally had sort of had some experiences with these apps and he'd seen uh that they existed and thought they were very interesting he became a volunteer as as did many of us on on the crew uh and you can help you get connected with somebody often random, you know, at randomly uh, if they need help. And that was the original spark for him starting to think about what could happen in mm. some of those scenarios and what that relationship could evolve into, you know, in terms of independence and, and, and teamwork and trust. And of course, you know, what could, what could go wrong in, in, a, right. in a movie world? 
Right. Yeah, it was fascinating. I know, I, and for those who are listening who haven't seen the movie yet, it, this basically is an app where somebody who's visually impaired can basically dial up somebody who's not visually impaired to use their phone as a way to guide them to or you know through certain scenarios. And it's a, it's a key element of the movie. But uh, yeah, really, really fascinating. And I mean, the fact that your, your star, Skylar Davenport, actually is visually impaired, the authenticity of this movie was very, I could, I could absolutely feel it. And I'm curious, is it, I mean, I feel like, you know, as a director, you, most people would think that directing is such a visual medium in terms of, you know, how you communicate visually and things like that. But I'm curious about, you know, your directorial sensibility and how your approach to directing changed when you were working with somebody who was visually impaired. I mean, was it more of a somatic experience? Was it... How how did your your directorial sensibility adapt? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you know it takes on a couple of different levels. Uh, you know, in this scenario, I guess it started with you know talking to Skyler. We had this great tight script that was developed and written, you know, by 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 these guys, and finding Skyler this 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 great gift of this performer who had this very rich lived experience, um, uh, loss of sight, you know, as an adult, um, and experiencing this kind of loss of independence and struggle and, 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 and relearning, uh, how to move through the world and experience it. So for me, those conversations informed so much in terms of character. And then there's a reflection in that, in terms of the visuals and how you try to represent Sophie's experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had a lot of conversations and a lot of thought went into how to help include a reflection of their experience, but without going to a world where they have these, you know, super senses that you see sometimes when somebody like Daredevil. Has, yes. Yeah. We, you know, we called, you know, we didn't want to go full Daredevil. <laughs> and we talked about what Skylar's experience really was like and, and, and you know, those things that came up as their experience changed after losing their sight and, and, and what, what did heighten because mm-hmm. that does happen, but it, you know, it doesn't become a, a, a new kind of ability. Right. And so to, to try to represent that cinematically um, without overdoing it was a great you know challenge and, and, and opportunity as well as playing within this lovely genre space of this suspense of this cat and mouse adventure going through this wintry mansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- all of that kind of all those layers started to play together as we kind of got into it. Wow. It sounds like a very holistic way to work. I mean, it sounds like you guys really developed the shorthand, you know, which I feel like is really important. You know, that was for me the the like, there's so many, there's so many magic tricks and so, so much fun in the process of, of storytelling. And at the core of it, what was so great about this one was, was those elements of representation. And as much as you want to deliver in a genre vehicle, this thing that people are coming to experience and the, the thrills and the chills that they're coming for, it was also a way to show a perspective that hadn't been seen a lot yeah. and that was sort of underrepresented and that we could do authentically because of Skylar's lived experiences. And, and Skylar was able to be like, Oh, it wouldn't quite be like this. I would maybe more, you know, say something like this, or this is how I would move in this scenario if right. I was in a rush, but still hadn't been down these stairs before. 
and like that those 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 that reflection of like authenticity but also like trying to kill a great genre uh, you know uh, experience mm-hmm. uh, is to me that's everything because we can do both of those things you know you, i think it can be meaningful and also like a fantastic thrill ride and yeah. like that got me going got me excited and and i think the crew really got into it as well as we were doing it. the movie had a real i mean some of your some of the the reviews remarked on the the very confident direction and the movie had a real it, it felt beautifully choreographed i mean it flowed in a really dynamic way and i'm curious how conscious was that or what was your approach to the overall sort of trajectory of the movie because there's a lot of twists and turns there's a lot of there's scares and then there's a lot of excitement and there's a lot of suspense was there any sort of charting of the trajectory of, all right, I want the audience to feel this and then I want them to feel this and then we got to relieve the tension or was it all just purely unconscious? It was absolutely conscious. I mean, I think that's a big part of, of the way that I approach things and the way that I break a story down and a script down. I think of it um, musically often, you know, I think of it as an album and you gotta, you gotta have shifts. Mm. You have to have, changes you can't stay sort of in one space or at one tenor for too long you need to keep things fresh um and you have to save you have to save some of those elements of suspense and you have to be able to 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 measure all of that and be very intentional about it the other added aspect of that for this piece is that you know while trying to represent sophie Sophie's perspective and, you know, the, the, the bad guys, you know, the, 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 the thieves, their, their perspectives, you also need to balance the audience's understanding of this space, Mm -hmm. because if everything is, is tight and everybody's just looking off screen and hearing things, but they don't have a sense of the greater space that everybody's occupying, Mm -hmm you miss an opportunity for people to realize how close that call was or, you know, where they're going to be. So there was this added element of they don't know necessarily where each other are, but the more that you can help the audience understand, Oh, this corner is where just around the corner from where they are and all of that, like building that, you know, in a seamless non expository, non instruction manual kind of way into the, production was another consideration um and then you know yeah built like you know mirroring the great script written by by tommy and adam in terms of of the unexpected elements right you don't want to stay in one space and you, you want to make sure that there are some really good twists and turns and some unexpected uh happenings within that space that we're still looking forward to you know uh, 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 people getting closer and 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 more scary and more danger and that kind of thing yeah and there's a lot of that sensibility and just observing the overall tone and tone shifts and trajectory for you. Does a lot of that come on the day as you're filming? Does it come in post uh, as you're editing? Does it come in the, the writer's room or is it all of the above? Where where do you start to dial that in? All of the above. Yeah. I definitely. But but, you know, there, there's, it's never too early. Um I would I definitely chart things out early on. A lot of things will change on the day. And of course, things will change again in the edit. But I'm definitely thinking about that stuff early on, because if it if it reads that way to you and you can get into it and you can help people understand that. I mean, you know, as, as things as simple as the, the speed of a camera move, 
you know, you if it's going to be entirely different, and and uh, you know, a tweak of twenty percent faster or slower is going to play completely different in the edit. So the more you can be thinking about that, um, you know, of course, it's going to affect what's happening on the day. Mm -hmm. So so musical tracks, you know, think thinking about uh, 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 yeah, how fast you're shooting, how fast the movements are, how fast the the actors are moving, because it's exciting on the day. And when you just take that little sliver of, of, of story and you're shooting it, it it can very easily feel you know that i should be moving faster or right. i'm more scared but you have to know that okay you're only in chapter three of ten and you have to the camera should still be moving like this because it's part of this greater sequence so you know everything from everything that can help keep us in that space whether it's tracks you're listening to while you're plotting out that section you know defining them defining them visually and these are these are minor differences mm -hmm. especially for the final audience you know it should all play sort of subconsciously but in terms of of when you're when you're constructing it you know certain tracks will reflect that speed and that space and that will help actors understand it will help camera understand and so if you play that track it's like oh, okay we're still in a gliding space you know we're not quite aggressive yet or um you know and that will help the, the the lighting the whole way through and then when you get to the edit i mean you know the editor had the sort of playlist that i had and you know what these weren't temp tracks but these were tracks that were representing okay well, when we get to um you know the, not to give anything away but obviously there's a bit of a showdown with each of the different bad guys and different yeah. things and they each have their own they each have their own um kind of flavor mm -hmm. you know they have their different characters and so we wanted to make sure that it didn't feel repetitive as much as possible and that they each had a different kind of energy when those when those showdowns happen so definitely thinking about that early on and how can we how can we make those really unique and it's you you said that you would play certain tracks and those are music tracks i assume right Yes, like yeah. during uh, during the shooting, just to get everybody on the same tonal page. I, it sounds like music is a big guide for uh, for your for your filmmaking. Yeah, I think it's a good. I think it's a great tool. Um, it's something that that a lot of people can understand. Yeah, uh, and it's it's a good metaphor for things. You know, I think about it, 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 it. It's just a good metaphor for a lot of that stuff. I mean, we're still talking about and thinking about color palette and, you know, uh, framing and all of the great techniques that you can, you know, everything from performance tone in this moment to where, where are we at? Um, but the music is such a good, it's a good metaphor because if you play a track and people are moving that dolly and you're looking at the monitor, it's like, you know, that's too fast. And if mm. you know that that's the flavor in that moment, uh, everybody can sort of, clue into that because we have this cinematic language and i think right. you know music communicates really quickly and it can drop you into a space that you might not be in because you're thinking well i'm getting chased here i should be moving like this but if you say no this is the sequence and you just came from there and this is the, the kind of speed of it um i find it helpful sometimes that's fascinating because i feel the more i think about it the more i feel like music is kind of the great equalizer in terms of getting everybody on the same page in terms of tone because there's certain elements of tone when it comes to movies and scenes that are really difficult to verbally articulate. Um, but if you have music, then people just sort of feel that. And it's almost a somatic experience, which, yeah, that's really interesting. That's really, really interesting. Um, I'd love to step back a little bit and talk about your overall directorial origin story. Can you talk about how you got started and, and how you, you got into directing movies? Sure. Um, 
I, you know, I started volunteering. I, I, I was always a fan of films. Um, I grew up, you know, loving them and, it took me a, a, a while to, to, to a realize that this was something that people, people could do. Yeah. And then kind of get to a place where I felt confident slash crazy enough to, to actually try, try to go about it. Um, and at that time I went to Vancouver because I heard that Vancouver had a film industry and I started volunteering on film sets and so so that's that my, my story is that i you know started working my way up i was i've done most jobs on a film set um i also worked at uh, uh i used to tell people that i worked in distribution mm-hmm. uh, just to say that i worked uh, at a video store uh, <laughs> while i was trying to break in and while i was volunteering on you know short films music videos you and tarantino so, yes uh it's a great you know it's a great great access to a good library uh, depending on what story you're at um and yeah everything from sweeping up sweeping up film sweeping up uh cigarette butts to you know running hard drives back and forth and and doing locations and then uh, i worked for a, a while as a producer's assistant as a director's assistant which kind of gave me a front row seat onto uh, uh in, in, in a viewpoint into how some of the larger budget projects kind of operated Mm -hmm. and I would always be sort of making my things evenings and weekends um, and just continuing to learn uh, and just work my way up like that. And, and along the way, like I've done, I've done a a great variety of projects, which I'm very grateful for. So I've done things that are, you know, animation, live action, hybrid. I also uh, have been lucky enough to, you know, develop a practice like an art practice that includes sculpture and installations. And uh, I think that those things doing all of those things, I did a virtual reality project very recently and you know, doing all of those things really, I think they, they reflect on each other, those experiences, those different kinds of learning and, and they keep me very sharp, mm. you know, in all mm-hmm. of those spaces. So that's kind of, that's kind of the, 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 the short version. Gotcha. Cool. And can you tell us about how you got your first feature off the ground? Sure. Um, like like many of us, the, so the, my first feature is called the Lock Picker, and it's uh, you know inspired by um, you know my experiences as a young person, and it's sort of a reflection of some 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 things that that I went through. Uh, it's a it's about a, a a thief, a teenage thief dealing with the loss of one of his best friends um, as a result of a suicide, and trying to figure out how to move through the world after that, dealing with some 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 criminal elements and some violent elements, and trying to you know figure out how to be be in the world. And uh, I'd written that, and I I, I put that together. Um, you know, it's a classic story of a, an incredibly large team of passionate people doing a lot of work for very little and making. We, we raised some money through uh, Telefilm and through some arts councils. Um, so Telefilm Canada and through the um, uh, provincial and federal arts councils here, the Canada Council for the Arts mm-hmm. and the Ontario Arts Council. And we just stretched those resources and we really uh, endeavored to kind of invent the process for ourselves because we knew, you know, it wasn't about what we could pay for. It was about what we could make work. And we, 
we ended up partnering with a Toronto high school and we sort of embedded ourselves in, a, in an open and working school. We engaged in what we called a, an open book uh, production methodology. So, and we invited students from the school to participate in front of the camera, behind the camera. Cool. They were allowed to attend and observe castings shadow you know different crew members on the set audition for roles and so most of the cast um were first-time performers including our lead who you know did an incredible job and you know it was a process that valued authenticity um above almost everything else and Mm -hmm. and we, we really had to slow down and engage with that but we were able to sort of deliver that because because of the way we designed the process and uh I learned a ton and wouldn't, wouldn't change anything for the world. That's super cool. Yeah. I feel like getting those first movies off the ground, it's a matter of really having a bunch of really passionate people around you who may or may not be getting paid as much as they would on another movie, but they're in it for the passion. I feel like that motivating a group like that takes a special kind of director. Like you can't be a taskmaster, but you also are asking people to work really, really hard. I'm curious as to what was the balance that you were able to find um, being able to do that, being able to just basically maximize resources seemingly without burning people out. um, But like kind of creating that mission, you know what I mean? I feel like it's such a fine line between being a dictatorial director that nobody wants to work with again and then somebody yeah. who can really just inspire people to like want to stay late and want to work hard and want to, you know, what was your experience like with that? I think, I mean, this is such a good uh, uh, area to focus on because to me, this is the whole secret. Okay. You you're, it's a trajectory and you're just trying to find people at the right time. It's only about timing. So as I said, and I, you know, like, like many of us, I've volunteered on many a set. I've leaned into some projects that, that had, you know, the reward was me learning, but I was there. I was eager. I was excited. And then after you sort of have a certain amount of learning, maybe you need a little more, you know, reward, or maybe you need a different kind of project, or maybe you can recognize the writing on the wall. Like this is going to be a really tough, you know, night shoot outside situation. And I can't really do that for a volunteer situation for many, many, you know, days. But the, the, the key for uh, about that for me is it's timing. What you're trying to find, like in the case of any crew, you're trying to find somebody who is is on the they they should as all of us they should be on their way up there they should be on their way to a place where you can't afford them you can't get them on the phone you you know they're too busy Mm -hmm. they could never you know fit this in but they're at a space where where right now this is a great opportunity for them so if you can provide somebody an opportunity to step into a role that they haven't played before but that's on the way to the role that they want to play or it is the role that they want to play yeah like that's the exchange and if you're allowing them to learn again not too much you don't want somebody to just be floundering you have to be able to sort of measure that trajectory and get them at the right time but you know and if you're lucky i mean i've had this experience making things as a director if i'm lucky on the next one those people might have moved on they might have surpassed that they might be moving faster than i can keep up with because right. you know a, a dp can shoot many many films a year for me as a director if i'm developing my own stuff it might be a little bit slower i might not be you know i might be moving a little slower up the up, up the budget ladder and that's fine that's what you want 
you want to be able to encourage and grow talent. And this is, you know, kind of leans into the community piece mm-hmm. and, and building the community as you go. So for me, it's always about timing and just finding somebody who's talented and excited at the same time about the, the particular opportunity that you can provide. Yeah. And if you do that, then like everybody's there for the right reasons. Mm. And the, the, the one other thing I will say is I always think you have to think about your time as the cheapest, but also the most valuable resource, Hmm. right? So if we're all working for very little a day, or if we're all showing up for, let's say nothing on those, on the early ones, the thing that you can like, why don't rush it, right? If you can do, you know, if you're making a short film and you can, you're, you can shoot it in two days and and people think you can shoot it in two days, but you you could use that extra day mm-hmm. in my experience and certainly still now, but you know, in, in those days, people are much more interested in staying an extra day to do something that has a much better chance of being great yeah. than to rush it to save that one day, one extra day of volunteering or that one extra day of, of borrowing that equipment. Mm. And really like making it harder for, for you to have the, the amount of footage that you need to make something great, you know? So that's kind of how I think about those things is like your time is the most valuable thing. So if you can do that prep work up front and save, you know, the, the money on the day, then like put that into it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now that, uh, that makes a whole world of sense. Um, one of my last questions, I am a huge fan of Kim Coates. What was it like working with him and how did you, uh, how did he get involved in the project? Well, I'm, I'm a huge fan as well. And um, it was, it was better than you can imagine. Yeah. You know, I'm a huge fan. I, I, he, 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 um, we, we made him an offer, you know, we went out to him. We were, we're, we're, we're a, we're a great piece, but we were not a huge film and, I think it's a reflection of him as a as a community member and as an artist that he saw he saw what was in there mm-hmm. and I think he saw the opportunity to to have some fun and to to play a, a really well written role and he knew that he could deliver and man did he ever yeah and, and you know we made this film over the course of the pandemic there was lots of uh, you know, we got shut down a couple of times and we had to come back and figure out our way forward. And the whole way through uh, a guy as busy and as in demand as he uh, is, he was totally there for us, a huge supporter. And uh, we couldn't be more grateful. You know, he's, you know, somebody like that comes in, everybody steps up their game. It's the opportunity to learn, to observe, and to also just like, you know, really elevate the whole, the whole thing. And, uh, we were very blessed to have him. He, he's a, he was a great collaborator. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And he, his performance was great too. Yeah. I actually had him on the podcast, uh, a couple of years ago and one of my favorite interviews for sure. He's, he's a wonderful human being. That's great. Totally- yeah. Well, Randall, I know we're, uh, we're getting low on time here, but, uh, huge congratulations on the movie. Really, really enjoyed it. Before we wrap up any parting wisdom or advice for those aspiring filmmakers out there. I mean, I love, I I love what you brought up. I love what we were talking about. You know, I think it's really about community building. If you build community projects will come. And so keep that in mind, you know, and always just, yeah, keep trying to figure out a way forward and don't, don't think that the way that other people are doing it or the way that it's been done is the way that it has to be. Uh, Especially when we, when we're facing things like the pandemic where we have to figure out new ways to take care of each other. So um, stay, stay healthy out there. Great. Awesome. Thank you again. Thank you, man. Thanks, Nick. 
Now, as always, here are some key takeaways from this conversation with Randall Akito. Number one, communicate with music. One of the ways that Randall is able to articulate the tone and trajectory of specific scenes is by selecting songs and pieces of music indicative of what he has in his head. So many elements of cinema are nuanced, and they're nuanced to the point where they're hard to communicate with words. Sometimes you need another medium to convey the intangible details of your vision, and music can be a great tool for this because it evokes very specific feelings. Randall uses music during the planning, filming, and editing of his movies, and even plays certain tracks for actors to inform their performances. Number two, find people at the right time. Randall is one of those directors who was able to get extremely high production value and excellent performances from a relatively low budget. Randall cites that a key to doing this is finding people at certain moments in their career when they're in a position to extend themselves. This is a matter of finding people at just the right moment when their career is about to take off and when your project can offer them a stepping stone to where they want to be. This goes for crew and cast alike. This is a great way to give people killer opportunities while also increasing the production value of your own film, all while on a budget. Part of this is a matter of hiring people based on ability as opposed to experience, and it definitely has its risks, but when it works, it can be a great exchange. Number three, cast relevantly. The protagonist of See For Me is a young blind woman, and Randall made sure that he cast someone who was actually visually impaired to play the role. This choice made all the difference. Even though it's a hot topic, Casting for relevance isn't necessarily even a matter of social good as much as it's a means to bring real authenticity to your performances and therefore deeper realism to your movie. As a result of personal experience with becoming blind in adulthood, lead actor Skylar Davenport brought a level of reality to the role and was able to channel actual experiences. This extended beyond their performance and into many other choices made on the film, directly informed by Skylar's true life experience all of which served the movie's realism. Guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on the social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. <laughs>